so y'all looked at sixteen at chapter sixteen of the book of Exodus, which is when the manna comes. Um, I, I just want to hit on a couple of things. One is that uh, they get halfway between uh, Egypt and the and Mount Sinai, where they will eventually get the Ten Commandments. But they're on the way, and uh, they. It says the whole congregation started to complain against Moses and Aaron, and they said, "Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Died by the hand of the Lord. What does that mean? That's during the plagues. We wish we'd just died of of the plagues or whatever they." Whichever of the plagues, I think that's what they mean by that. It's they just so ignorant that that they would ignore how God's provided for them. So they're complaining that there's nothing to eat. They said, um, "Oh, when we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full." I don't think that was true. Um, that's not typically been true of people who are in forced labor. Uh, and I doubt that that's what it was. So they're talking about how awesome it was in Egypt and how terrible it is now that you brought us to the wilderness to kill us from hunger. Um, and God gives, he said, here's how it's going to happen. Man is going to come down. And we're all familiar with how that happens. They, they get every morning, they wake up and it says like the dew that fell, there was this powder on the ground and somehow it, they turned it into cakes that they would eat and, that they would have just enough for a day, about a, uh, about a half a gallon for each person. And that they had enough for one day and they shouldn't save any because there'll be some more the next day. And then, but the interesting thing was that on the sixth day, they would gather it up and they would have enough to last them for two days. Um, this is kind of, because that would have been the next question. Wait, if we're supposed to rest on the seventh day, what are we going to do? Starve on the seventh day? Um, it's interesting because later on in history, when, well, and not far down the road, but they're told that they're, that they're supposed to, they're supposed to harvest the land for six years. And on the seventh year, they would let it rest. They would even let the land rest. Uh, did you, did y'all talk about that? Okay. They would let the land rest. But the promise that God gave them in Leviticus is that there would be enough for, to feed them all through the next year. That they would gather it just the same as they had before. And it, it's unclear whether it, God miraculously made it not run out for a whole year, or if they would get a double portion on that year because of God's provision. But whatever it was, they would have enough to last them. And that's the way this was with the manna. And by the way, what does manna mean? What is this? What's this? Um, apparently, I don't think God gave it that, that name. That's what they called it. They called it manna. Um, when Moses speaks to them, though, Moses said, uh, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you made against him. Moses didn't take it personally, which is interesting. Uh, he said, No, you've really, you may claim you're only complaining against me, but you're really complaining against God. That's interesting to me that he qualifies it that way. So they gather up enough on, on that next day, a whole gallon that lasts them. And it wouldn't stink because some of them found out what happens if you gather too much. If you don't trust God and you're afraid there won't be any the next day, when you wake up the next morning to eat it, it's going to be full of bugs. Maggots. It's going to be spoiled. Sorry, Pam. I said it. Uh, it's going to, that stuff would spoil and it would stink. But at, on that, on the seventh day when they woke up, it didn't stink. And, um, 
and they were taken care of. Um, the, in the end of it, did you talk about the part that was Aaron laid it up before the testimony at the end? Well, in a different direction on that one, so it's not going to be the same direction you go, so go ahead and tilt that. Okay. Um, so they actually, after this, at the end of the chapter, uh, God tells them, he says, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it, which is a, a half a gallon, and lay it before the Lord to be kept for the generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, and Aaron laid it up before the testimony. So they kept it. They kept a pot of this manna, and it didn't spoil. It's the same manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant, so it's in the big golden box behind the holy, behind the curtain and the Holy of Holies. So when Jesus is crucified and the curtain's ripped, that same manna is in there and it's not spoiled. Of course, it, it, Jesus is the new manna on that. So where did you go with it? Uh, I was going with... A kind of blended prosperity and, and Jesus. Okay. So I've said, you, know, you don't lay up your, your whole prosperity for your generations to come. We're going to spoil, spoil them. But, right. But, so I went in a different direction. Well, it was a reminder that God can be trusted and that, I mean, that's why they put it in there. The reminder was, and God told him to. He said, Say, save a bit of this as a, as a remembrance that I took care of you during I didn't this. Think about it, but that man lasted. At least, uh, almost all the way through the judges, at least up to Eli. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I thought it lasted until they quit wandering. Well, we don't hear anything because there's a part, there's three things in the Ark of the Covenant. There mm-hmm. was the, uh, the rod of Aaron, the, the testimony, the commandments, and manna. And at some point, um, they started disappearing. I'm Because there wasn't a testimony yet. Right. And God says, put it before the testimony. So I don't know if Moses, when he's writing down, if he just makes this the ma- the chapter on manna and he writes it all down, but some of it is stuff that happens chronologically a little bit later. So this, when he puts the, the manna before the testimony, which doesn't exist yet, God hasn't given it to him because they haven't made it to Mount Sinai, but whatever the... St- well, it's a preamble to the commandment because he does, he, telling. Does give, he does give him a command before he actually goes up and gets them. Yeah. So I think it's a preamble kind of. That's right. Yeah. All of this is kind of lumped together. So, which takes us to 17. Uh, it says, oh, I, I can do this. Here we are. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin uh, that's not sin the way we think of it. It's the same sin that's in sin, Sinai or Sinai, Mount Sinai. It's um, it's that's it's a root, that's the root word for that. And they camped in the Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, "Give us water that we may drink." Contended. There it is again. Um, it's like wrestled again. Um, wrestled, give us water that we may drink. Now, I don't know if that's different from co- just complaining about it. Uh, it the picture is more of an, an actual argument. Um, and maybe it's just like, why didn't you leave us in Egypt? Same as the, the way they've done some of the other times. But they get into this argument about it. Moses said, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Oh, I've got the, why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses cried out to the Lord saying, so Moses cries out, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord says, go on before the people and take with you some elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink it. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And so he called the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Okay. So Massah and Meribah, that 
that's mentioned two more times in our Bible, in the whole scripture here. One of them is in uh, Psalm 69, Psalm 95. Psalm 95, verse 7. Uh, well, let me just... Let me just read that right quick. It's right here. Um, verses 7 through 11. For he is our God, and we are his people, the pastor, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you'll hear his voice, so the voice of the shepherd, today if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And this is what it's talking about. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, Though they saw my work, they tried me, even though they've already seen my work. For 40 years, I was greed with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know me, do not know my way. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That is mirrored in Hebrews chapter three, when Paul is talking about comparing the supremacy of Jesus to Moses uh, and Abraham and to the angels and all that. He quotes this from, uh, from Psalm 95, Paul does, the writer of Hebrews, and says that, uh, says that the, in the day of contention at Massah and Meribah. And so these places are mentioned uh, every time it's, they talk about it, but it's it's a it's a memorial in the minds of the the Hebrew people, uh, and all the way into Paul's day, that that's that marks out a memorial of contending with God, arguing with God, not trusting God for stuff. Um, the day of contention, because Massah means. Trial and testing, and Meribah means strife. So, and it said that they were tested, uh, which is Nisah. Nasah is tested. Oh, and tested Nasah in God's provision. Jehovah Nisi that God provides. That's uh, that is. Well, we don't. We see that in just a second. Sorry jumped ahead. Now Amalek came, so the Amalekites are the people from Amalek, or Amalek. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. This is a famous story that you may not recognize it right yet, but you will in just a second because we've heard about it a lot. Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek, or Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and her, Aaron and her, remember hearing that? Went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So the first thing they did was they took a stone and put it under him so he could sit so he could sit on the stone, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. The, um, the um, Amalekites, or Amalekites, uh, they play later on in when David is... Uh, when Saul fought the Amalekites, he was supposed to kill King Agag, and he didn't, and he brought some of the spoils back, and that's when uh, Nathan the prophet, Samuel, Samuel, Samuel the prophet, sorry, when Samuel the prophet comes uh, and ends up killing King Agag for him. Another place the Amalekites come up is in the story of Esther, because Haman, the the bad guy, was a uh, was a descendant of the Amalekites, and uh, if they'd been killed off when they were supposed to have been, that we wouldn't have had the problem with Esther and and Haman. Uh, but 
because of raising the hands, they, they were able to defeat the, peop, the Amalekites. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. That's what the promise was. I'm going to utterly wipe them out. But And there was a plan for that, and it was Saul, but that didn't happen. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. Uh, for he said, Because the Lord is sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord is my banner. That's Jehovah Nisi. Jehovah Nisi. Which means the banner. Which the, what does a banner mean? It's making announcements. It's making it's a, a, a reminder. So Moses put some of the um, put some of the manna in a in a jar to remember, and then okay, write this down in the book. Is what God tells him. Uh, write this down in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua so that he'll remember that I'm always going to take care of not just the Amalekites, I'm going to take care of all the people that are that stand against you. Uh, he wrote it as a memorial in the book, is what God told him to. Apparently, Moses may be writing down what we already have right here. He may already be writing this, or he may be, have started a book called all the people that stood against us when we were going into the promised land. But uh, it's written down, and that is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Well, they have Chronicles, and Chronicles goes all the way back to Adam. Doesn't it, First Chronicles? First Chronicles? No, it's just the kings. That's, it starts with... The kings start with kings, but I think the first chapter of Chronicles it goes all the way back to Adam. Does it really? Yeah. And the Chronicles was usually written by the priest, like Samuel had a book of Chronicles, and right? Things and like that, so so he may be this may be a Chronicles thing. That you're right. It does go back to the very beginning. Genealogy. The yeah. gene- genealogy does go before even before yeah. the kings. Interesting. Um, this is, but that that book that Moses is writing is different from that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a part of the Pentateuch, the first five books, that that traditionally, tradition says Moses wrote it. Now, didn't, do you think um, that Moses wrote Genesis before he went to Egypt? And that's what kind of brought it all together, is God says there's more to the story. Before who went to Egypt? Moses. Oh, you mean that he yeah. wrote it out in Midian? Yeah, Midian, and then okay. that's what, kind of what led up to everything, and God's going, story's not over yet. Oh, that's interesting. So I don't know what scholars say on that or not. Right. That's just my thoughts. That's interesting. I I don't know if he would have written that before, but you know, one of the beliefs is that he, since he was in the Pharaoh's palace, that he learned just record keeping. Like when it says, let it be written, let it be done, the law of the Medes and the Persians, that that it was a Persian custom. It was a custom of the Arabs that lived, you know, around uh, the Mediterranean uh, that they kept records of everything, and and it's clear. I mean, you can in the 1800s and the early 1900s they were still discovering um, they were still discovering new stuff in in Egypt in those pyramids and stuff. And a lot of it is just record keeping. It's just, you know, this guy had a hundred cows and he bought this much grain. And it's just simple, regular stuff that the Phoenicians, uh, which had that cuneiform writing, which was just the, the little wedges, um, that all of that is just, uh, lists of things, grocery lists and stuff like that. So it was probably customary for, for that it, Moses grew up with that kind of stuff, so maybe he did start writing it down in Midian. I don't think in Midian he had any idea that he would ever go back to Egypt or that he would be a part of this big history, but he may have just, because he didn't have anything else to do, started writing stuff down. Of course, it would have been expensive to write things down, to have actual, like papyrus or something like that. But they did have that, so...
That's where paper was invented. That's why we call it paper. It's from papyrus. So, that, and that was invented in Egypt. So, so we had, we had the manna and the quails went with that too. The quail would fall, the quail would just be on the ground. I, have y'all ever, have y'all ever hunted quail? Any of y'all? They, if God gave us those quail now, they wouldn't be very easy to catch. I think they were some kind of big... In South Texas, they had a kind of a quail called chucker, but they're almost as big as a chicken. And um, it may have been something like that or, or some other, maybe some kind of flightless bird that, that didn't fly away because it'd be pretty hard to catch you know, regular quail. Um, it, they're almost impossible to hunt without dogs, but... Uh, so you can kind of sneak up on them. The dogs let you know where they are before they fly. Um, so, but we had the we had the man and the quail, and then we had the water provision, and then we have God's provision of the people um, of defeating the army of the Amalekites. And they weren't these people were not soldiers. They weren't fighters. At least the, it, there's no indication that they would have been. Now, some of, there may have been some soldiers that came out of Egypt with them that recognized that they were the people because there were extra people that came out that weren't Hebrew people. So maybe there were some soldiers, but it, it's unlikely that they would have had enough of a trained army to beat another trained army. Uh, and so God provides that way. So all this provision in those two chapters where God takes care of them. <clears throat> then we have a little bit of turn because we have... Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, coming on the scene and um, gives him away. There's two million people in this on this journey now. So it says in verse 1 of chapter 18, it uh, says, And Jethro, priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So he heard about it. Um, they didn't have phones, didn't have the internet, but they had caravans. And that's how news traveled back and forth was from, uh, caravans of traders. And so Midian was on the way, uh, from in the Mediterranean, all the trading that happened all up around that. Midian is on the way, and that's probably where he heard of it. Jethro's, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, her name was Zipporah, after he had sent her back. So when he is in Egypt, he sends the wife back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, which means, uh, for he said, I've been a stranger in a foreign line, which is what Gershom means. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Eliezer means temporary. And it's, it's that he was only living in Egypt for a temporary time. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God, so Mount Horeb. Now he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. Um, There's no rules about we know that later on, especially especially in Jesus' day, there were rules about who you could associate with and you wouldn't associate with foreigners or you'd become unclean, you wouldn't eat with them, all those kind of things. Uh, but that's later on. There's no rules for that. So it's not, very, it's not strange that he comes into the tent with him. Except the difference now is that God is talking to Moses. And, I, um, and did Moses divorce Zipporah at this point? Mm-mm. <clears throat> Because he marries that Ethiopian woman, so he's... I, I don't think that's... I'm, I'm, don't, I'm not sure about that. Uh, Moses told his father-in-law in the tent, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, they... He are, his father-in-law already knows about it, but he tells him, you know, gives him the details, and all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had did it, delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. 
And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. So we don't know. He was a priest of Midian. He may have been a priest similar to how Job was a priest for his own children. Uh, and he may have been a God worshiper. Uh, that may have been part of how, why he had such a good relationship with Moses. We don't know what it is, but whatever the deal is now, he's expressing uh, he's expressing a type of faith in God and and God's provision because he gives he gives God the credit for it. He doesn't say, "I'm so glad m- that my daughter's married to you." And that you're my son because you're a really great guy. He doesn't recognize Moses. He recognizes God and all that. And that, that in the very thing that they had been, that the Egyptians had behaved proudly about. And I'm not sure what that is exactly. It could be that they were proud of, of having put the Hebrew people in and enslaved them. Or been proud of all their horses and all of their riches that God took away, basically, during all that time. But whatever it is, he, Jethro credited it to God that he had, he had humbled the, the Egyptians and all that. Then Joseph, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So all, the, all these other leaders recognize, um, recognize Jethro for his faithfulness, whatever it, whatever it is, to God and, and give him credit for that. That is a, a big deal that they would sit down and eat with him. A, a foreigner and not part of the group. But for se- several weeks now, they've had all these other foreigners, so maybe they're getting used to it. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning till evening. So this was what Moses commonly did. I don't know if he did it. Every day, or when they stop uh, from some of their traveling, because it was apparent that they'd travel a little bit and then they'd rest where they were. They couldn't rest for anywhere very long because, well, there wasn't stuff to eat and they'd run out of water, uh, although maybe water was just pouring out of this rock continuously. Uh, but he's but Moses would sit down and listen to the complaints of the people. Uh, apparently, he did kind of like a judge and settled their disputes and things. And don't you know that there were a lot of disputes with this bunch? During when I was studying for this, I thought about all the things that my kids used to complain about when we were on trips. They're on my side. He took this, uh, all the complaining that went on, uh, and there was apparently a lot. I mean, we've got some of it listed here. But um, so he sits down and he listens to it from morning until evening, all day long. Moses said, so Moses, uh, so when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? You know what the answer to that was? If I let them sit down, how long would we be here? So, and Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another. I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. Now, this is where there aren't laws yet. So this is where it's kind of fuzzy because this is, this happened before they get to, before they get all the law stuff. Or maybe it's unclear what the chronology is here, but, um, 
He may be telling a little bit of something that happens before because in the next chapter, we've, it's when we get the laws. Uh, and Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing you do is not good. This thing is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Now, I don't think in, when they lived in Egypt that the Pharaoh made every decision that was made. Um, there were The Pharaoh didn't go out and observe the pyramids being built or, or these bricks being created. I, I would venture to say that the Pharaoh never saw them make one single brick. There were overseers for that kind of thing. So it's, it's strange that Moses would decide that I'm just supposed to, I'm supposed to do it all. It is strange, or is it? I don't think so. I, th- I think if you see God is going to create a whole new nation, I would kind of wipe the slates clean, forget everything I know, and start over just rather than have this mix of what I think and what uh-huh. God says. And he was the only one. God was speaking to. Okay. If they had, if they wanted to know what God was saying, Moses was who they had to ask. Mm-hmm. Of course, the one that's speaking to the people is Aaron. It seemed like he could have at least enlisted Aaron to listen to some of them, but he was the one that was making all the decisions, and he didn't. He, what? What's it called? Well, it. No, we'll come to that in a second. It. Part of me says. It was weird for him to think that this is the way you do things, but how many of us have seen preachers that try to do everything? I think every preacher must probably go through this. Most of them do anyway. Mm-hmm. That they're the arbiter of God. That's when, you're, that's when you're a young preacher. When you're an old preacher like me, you know better. You yeah, know that you're, that you're not the only one that hears from God. You know, I mean, so, but... At first reading, this looks dumb that he's do, he's trying to do everything himself, except that's, I've seen it happen a lot of times. But what Jethro's advice to him, I don't know if Jethro came up with it on his own or what, but it has been the model for how you do things even in the military. You've got, you've got a general and then you've got all the people under him. Because what Jethro tells him to do, he says, listen now to my voice, I'll give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statute, you shall teach them the statutes and the laws. You're not going to be the old judge of everything. He said, you'll teach them the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover... So that, he said, that one of the ways you fix the problem with them is you don't keep all the laws inside of you. Tell them the laws. And this is a model for how God does with the people from this point onward. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as one, fear God, men of truth, and hating covetousness, so they're not selfish and just want all the stuff, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens, which is what you've got in all kinds of organizations. And we're used to that thing now, but it was apparently a new idea then. But it's exactly the kind of chain of command stuff that we see in the military and that kind of a structure for for ruling over a large, large group of people. And and Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, came up with it. And he says, let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge, so it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. So, um... He's the Supreme Court now. The what? He's the Supreme Court now. Yes, <laughs> He's the supreme. He's the one that, in the end, does the things. But little things are taken care of uh, in in the small groups. This is also what we base life groups on. The, what? What we base life groups on. Yeah, as well. that's right. That's right. Um, 
Brother Dwayne was talking about this 30 years ago, how so many pastors tried to do everything. He said, you can't get it all done. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to teach pastors. And so we had group pastors and things like that then. He says, let, uh, so it'll be easier for you. They'll bear the burden. If you do this thing, if you do this thing and God so command you, commands you, he says, run this by God. And he says, see what he says. Uh, if God so commands you, then you'll be able to endure and all these people also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. So they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way back to his own land. So Jethro returns to the land of Midian, and uh, but he brought extremely important counsel to Moses that prepares them for the future and prepares them for to live out the next a thousand or more years. I'm not sure how many. It's around there. So, and that's the end of chapter 18. Any comments, questions? Sarge? Aren't these the same people that later Gideon had to fight? The Amalekites? Uh, oh. Do, oh, okay. That's right. That's right. Okay. That's right. 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 The different countries came from families. Even the Hebrews. That's right. Came out of Abraham, and then they became tribes and nations. Right. And people. I, I found it very strange that God would cut lots of slack and then he would produce a race of Moabites. Yes. Or God would cut some slack to another group of people and they would turn on God. Right. Esau, the Edomites, all the ites were people that Israel had a problem with. And there were part, most of them were family going down the line. That's right. There were cousins. A lot of them were. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Doesn't mean that Jethro came back. Um, uh, Jethro did not lead a big group of God worshipers from Midian. He may have been the only one. Uh, well, you know, God said that he had sheep and other pastures. That's, that's right. And, you know, we, we don't have a, a clear recollection of some of the famous people in the Bible. The one that Abraham tied to about Melchizedek, yeah. Yeah, and then Job. He comes out of the blue. I mean, you don't have right. to name of him. That's true. And then, then Jethro, you know, you don't have to name of him. That's and right. God is able to do what, what he wants to That's right. I think he really, in my opinion, that's just me. God doesn't want the people that love Him because of what they give Him. You know, God gives them. 
Right. Right. Because he's God. Yeah. Right. Creator, all all the things. I agree with that a thousand percent. Um, it is not our relationship with God is not a transactional relationship that we that that we give him our worship because of what he gives to us. That is, that's wrong. Um, that's what we talked about last week, about the, partly on the Sabbath, you know, we're called human beings, but six days a week we're kind of human doings. Uh, he wants us to come to him as a human being, just being in his presence, and him just mm. being in our presence, rather this transactional thing you're talking about. Hmm. Hmm. That's touching on my Sunday sermon again. <laughs> Be, the diff, being and doing. Yeah. Um, I, I agree that God's had relationships with people, individuals in other times, apparently, because he had a relationship with Job that is not a part of the, of the Hebrew religion. Job may have been somewhere in the lineage since Adam, Oh, obviously, yes, since Adam, we're all part of that lineage. But um, but I don't know if he was an intimate of, or if he was just seeking after God the only way he knew how. Because um, Romans says that we know about God because he, his testimony is in creation itself. Well, we, we're, that we're without excuse because God has revealed himself in his creation. And that that revelation, limited though it may be, is a, is a, enough, I believe, for people to seek after God. Not knowing how to do it exactly, but that they'd seek after God. And that's, that's who we have in Jethro. Uh, even though there's not a covenantal relationship that there was with Abraham, and there's not a promise to be with, uh, with Jethro's people or anything like that. No covenant relationship at all that we know of. Did you have anything else? I just noticed that that these tribes became these patriarchs became tribes of nations. Yes. That's right. Well, there's the twelve tribes of Israel from you know from uh, Jacob, and then uh, um, his brother also had twelve tribes of princes, which created twelve nations. Plus, But you had all the you had all the nations too from Babel, from Babel, um, Tower of Babel as well. God had given up on all the nations and says, "I'm going to create a new nation," which He did through Abraham. But He didn't eliminate all those other nations. Plus, Abraham had a lot of nations. He'd be the father of many nations, which He has. He's been father of I can't remember like fifty some nations himself. Well, we're all branches off Adam. That's all. <laughs> I think all those next, there's dwindling numbers until you get to Jesus, and then the nations start to spread out again. Because every nation, every tongue, every tribe will bow their knee and proclaim Jesus as Lord. So that, so we dwindle from all these groups down to a particular group, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, with the 12 tribes. But then we... And then those 12 tribes dwindle down to two, and then from those two, we get Jesus, and then it starts growing to more tribes again. Because that's what we got now. All around the world, people that are not, not knowing they're connected to Jews. I personally, my family is not. Um, and you've got people from everywhere. You've got you've got Egyptians and Arabs, and you've got people in India. I, uh, Psychiatrist that I worked with one time, 
I, he, I found out he was Christian. And I thought it was unusual that somebody from India was, uh, was Christian. And I said, well, how long has your family been Christian? And, you know, I thought he, you know, that he might be a generation or two like that. And he says, about 800 years. Since Thomas. <laughs> his, his, the, um, his uh, ancestor was the, the librarian at some big thing and discovered the Bible there 800 years ago. Well, my, I could only claim maybe a couple hundred years of my family being Christian because those of us who came from European backgrounds, you know, our, uh, a few hundred years ago, our relatives were pagans. So, much less than 800 years for sure. So, it's an interesting. It's an interesting study to figure to find out what what is even classified as a nation because they have to have their own language. They, you know, they have to have their own customs and different things like that. But when but when God has taken somebody from every nation, we're going to find out just exactly how many nations there ever, ever was because at least one person from every single nation is has bowed down willingly to Jesus Christ. Every nation, every time. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So, so I'm excited now. I'm ready to go. <laughs> what's what's going to be your tongue? <laughs> yeah. You're going to be the nation of Oklahoma. I think me bring up Job and Jethro and whatever they might have been. I think that speaks a lot. It's a good argument for the fact that. God, a relationship with God is not, even in the Old Testament, it's not about a bunch of rules. It's oh. about relationship because there aren't rules. Oh, yeah, yeah, all of those people, their relationships. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, they were never there, but I'm talking about like Job and Jethro, where we don't yes. really know what they, okay. where they got what they got. You know, we don't have. Certainly, they didn't have to make a Yeah, and that's what it is. There wasn't even a law for Jethro to be aware of. And it was all through relationship through Abraham. Well, sure. Through the promise of Abraham. But yeah, the covenant, the covenants are... There's we, all, we have the story of Abraham. Yeah. And, all that. and I mean, uh, and long, you can trace long lineage from Abraham on That's it. right. Job had, we had no connection to Job. Right. But God yeah. spoke to him. And we don't have that story of I mean, we have the story of Job, but we don't have the story of any connection in Job. We don't have God working through a nation through Job, but yeah. God worked in Job's life. Job, God had a relationship with Job, which I mean, it, to me, is just a is a yeah. and it's still happening today. Relationships, yes, it's still happening today because there's people that have never heard Christianity. And all of a sudden they're getting, you know, dreams of Jesus himself. And then God's making a way so they can know the name to be saved. Because I mean, the only thing the Jews brought through, they brought the, the law and the prophets, you know, the salvation of the Jews. But anybody can enter a relationship with God who's seeking him, and then they'll find him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes we tend to think of history because it's been represented that way. Is that it, a, a nation was so insulated that nothing from the outside could come in? But I mean, just like Jethro heard, heard that, that what had happened in Egypt came out and in some meeting, we uh, we have Rahab who lives in Jericho, and so she's part. She's a Canaanite, and she but she's heard because she said we've been worried about you over forty years. So there was stories that stuff was heard. So it's very likely that stories of, of Adam and Noah and that, that other groups were aware of that of those. In fact, historically, you had some record of story similar stories. And I think of the great flood. That, uh, some people say that proves that all of this is made up because everybody has those stories. I think they have the story. And one thing's just not part. 
write about it, that they had heard about what happened with Adam. And it created a, a, a story of its own that's separate from Adam uh, that, mm -hmm. that got told over and over. So, but I think it's the set, it is Adam, and it is the story of Noah. Um, that some scientists and people who are, you know, try to prove the Bible wrong, that's what they say. There's stories of that from all, all different cultures. I think it's the same story. The flood yeah. story? Mm -hmm. Well, sure it would be, because it was yeah. affected by all, you know, but, yeah, but God was only watching over one word to perform it. He was watching over the Jewish to make sure they preserved it. Right. And that's why he had to insulate them so much, just like he tried to do with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Jacob went back, and, okay, get Joseph out of here and get him to Egypt, because they brought everything into this land. And so he, he, had, he had to get some time to tribe and insulate them so Jesus could be born of pure blood. I mean, blood of him, but also pure lineage. Yes. And then it didn't matter, because we had the new Adam here. But until then, he had to do it this way. So he had let their stories go around, but he didn't correct their stories. Yeah. He just made sure this story was all the way down. Right. Correct. And, as this, and it was they had a written language for a long, long time. Because yeah. we can trace it back for, yeah. for thousands of years. So, All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you. We thank you. And, and don't take it lightly that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And you've protected that word through thousands of years to come to us in the form that we have today and, and the book that we can carry around, your, the scripture, and that we can have it on our phone and have it access to it. Lord, you caused that to happen in order for the revelation of yourself to us to be plain and clear to us uh, because it's a word that still is, is true and timely even for us today. Uh, so may we, um, may we make adjustments of ourselves to that word rather than trying to adjust the word and who you are to, to what our experience is as this happens in the world so much today. Because we want to glorify you in what we do. In Jesus' name, amen.